any business model that more easily facilitates collaboration uh, up and down the supply chain quickly across the globe is going to be much more attractive and much more effective in a digitally enabled environment. Hello and welcome to our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. We recorded last year's version of this episode on the same morning as Russia invaded Ukraine. Almost one year later, the war is ongoing. Inflation is rising and we seem to be facing a myriad of crises. Energy crisis, cost of living, climate and food, and broadly grim economic news in constant flow. On the top of that, a disastrous earthquake just hit two nations that were already struggling economically, with one still not even on the road to recovery from a 10-year war, and the other one being in an ongoing debt and currency crisis. Political situation is worrying to you globally. Sad developments in Iran, Afghanistan, and tensions in a number of African countries. It's a concerning picture globally, to say the least. But if we had to summarize it all, the world is probably disruption. And we seem to be moving from one disruptive event to another. The global economy has been operating in this disruptive environment since the beginning of 2020. So are we now also facing the risk of disruption fatigue? and potentially not being able to respond to developments as adequately as we should. How well geared is the financial sector globally to withstand another troublesome year? And what glimpse of hope do we have amongst this fairly gloomy picture? Certainly all sorts of questions I would like to know the answers to. So today I have invited two of our Grant Thornton's most prominent leaders to deliberate on all this, discuss some other pertinent to the financial services industry developments, and perhaps look for the opportunity for business in all that. I would like to first welcome Robert Hanna. Robert is part of Grant Thornton's leadership team and leads our large and complex advisory business in the UK, whilst also being responsible for the international business support function globally. Robert has spent over 33 years with Grant Thornton, with experience across different parts of the business, from audit to corporate finance and various international roles. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Pleasure to have you. Lots of years in Grant Thornton as well. <laughs> well done on that. Thank you, Irina. We are also joined by Alex Ayrton, who is the head of our financial services group and oversees the services we provide to financial institutions. Alex was until recently the head of our regulatory practice and for over 20 years has been providing risk and regulatory services to a wide range of firms. This means he understands well the breadth of the practical issues faced by financial services firms and has first-hand experience how to support them in critical situations. Great to have you again on the podcast, Alex. Welcome. Thanks, Irina. Lovely to be here. Lots to talk about, I think. Indeed. And talking about critical situations and developments, I've painted a rather grim picture at the start. So shall we perhaps begin with tackling some of those global challenges in turn? So clearly the financial services industry is not operating in isolation and all these events are having a profound impact. But if we were to try and rank those by severity, I would have thought geopolitical tensions certainly hold the top spot. How do you think geopolitics continues to impact on business operations globally and and respectively supply chain, which seems to be one of the hardest hit areas? And maybe maybe Robert, starting with you. Sure, thanks, Irina. Um, Well, I think the impact of these 
geopolitical tensions have been profound, as you say, for all businesses in the marketplace and particularly coming so close to the COVID pandemic and the impact of that, which obviously still continues as well. We have energy cost increases, we've got supply chain shortages, we've got raw material inflation, we have food supply challenges, and all of these are exacerbated by the geopolitical landscape. And I think in the coming 12 months, unfortunately, um, it's likely to be the same with the continuation, sadly, of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict and some people think the likelihood of some military action in Taiwan increasing. Um, so, so we have that backdrop and I think businesses have to be thinking about what's the scenario plan for a number of those eventualities and how do they find mitigating strategies such as multiple source suppliers, nearshore onshore options, uh, joint venture arrangements in critical territories. And then businesses need to adapt to a changing financial landscape of higher interest rates, forex volatility, credit tightening, all which can be seen as to some degree uh, connected to that geopolitical unrest. So I think businesses look to their capital structure, ensure that they're geared properly for the opportunity. But as you can see, the, the impact of, of these kind of situations is potentially significant, but any good business should be thinking about its adaptability and its flexibility and thinking about how it can respond by making sure it's got good contingency plans to be able to, to deal with it. Yeah, no, thank you, Robert. And, and Alex, what's your view on the resilience, if you like, of the financial services industry in that I, backdrop? <laughs> yeah, it, and, it, and it's a it's a really significant backdrop, isn't it? But I do think, uh, and you're right to highlight it, Irina, we've we've looked at a global financial services in, in, you know, uh, industry with institutions who have been um, resilient, have, I think, over the last 12 months and in the pandemic uh, period immediately prior to that as well, been really at the centre of, of government approaches to uh, trying to ensure that the economic impact is managed as well as it can be. So operational resilience of those financial institutions has really been put to the test. Uh, I think when we spoke um, last this time last year, you know, if you ever wanted real case studies of how well set up um, large institutions are to deal with these kind of shocks and events, um, we've had some really good case studies in that they have responded well to them and they are still there and they are still doing what they're expected to do. So I think if you add in um, the significant role that global financial services uh, institutions have, have taken in responding quickly and robustly to, uh, frankly, really rapid changes in sanctions and financial crime control changes over that period as well. Um, there is a, you know, amidst all of the angst, there's there's a really good um, good story there as, as to what financial services has, has, has done globally. Um, I guess we might come on a little bit more in due course to how all of this um, contributes to, 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 to their role in, in an inflationary and, and stagflation environment um, and, and how they might um, make sure they focused on the right things to, to sort of balance their own um, resilience um, whilst whilst delivering what they need to to their clients and customers over, over the next 12 months too. So it's fair to say it's a grim picture but the glimpse of hope is probably the bit around the resilience of financial services institutions. Having said that though this is now 
also topped up with the cost of living crisis, as you say, rising inflation and, and other economic pressures. And perhaps the movement that has had the biggest impact on the financial services industry recently certainly has been the rising interest rates. How do you see this unfolding in 2023 and probably well into 2024? Alex, given you mentioned that, perhaps starting with you. Yes, and I mean, I'd, so, so I'll disclose right up front, I'm not an economist. Um, there are clearly commentators out there right now who, who are, I think, are already pointing to there being an increasing confidence that, that we might have seen the worst of, of, of the, the rate of interest rate rises. Um, but it's certainly, you know, in, in a world where I think we're already starting to see some of how that's been priced in and reflected in some of the um, fixed um, retail lending costs as well. Um, but in a in a world where you know all of this means that we've got um, a much more material net interest margin um, for for those banks out there, which which you know has has an impact on uh, their profitability, but also will shift the mindset of, of consumers in terms of those who are looking to save um, for the for the future uh, with a with a population that continues to age and retirement ages that continue to shift as well. So. Um, I think when you look at the cost of borrowing for um, consumers and for small businesses, um, that that you know we've seen a lot of um, continued focus over the last few years of, of regulators on, um, frankly, the affordability of of, of that kind of debt, um, and then the ongoing treatment of those borrowers who, in these circumstances, might find themselves um, ultimately less able to service those loans. And so I think that's going to absolutely be a continued focus for um, regulators over the next um, couple of years. And I think that's 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 not just the UK. That's that's more widely than that as well. Um, and it will be interesting to see just in terms of all of the, um, you know, the end position of, of, of the uh, performance of the government back lending under the various COVID um, business support schemes. Um, we've still got to see how that really shakes out. Um, and um, I think we'll start to see more of a true picture this year of what that means for small businesses, but also probably for those lenders whose balance sheets have, have seen material growth as a result of that kind of lending as well. Yeah, no, thank you. Clearly nobody wants to talk about this loans yet. Let's see what the results at some point. And, and Robert, do you work with a number of large corporates? Obviously, Alex talks a lot about the loans and the retail lending space, but from your perspective, how is that impacting the, the larger financial institutions and the large institutions more broadly? Well, I think uh, interesting, as, as Alex has alluded to, um, there's both the impact of inflation as well as interest rates and how they often go hand in hand and the impact that it can have. So I think navigating their way through wage inflation will be one of the first biggest challenges for UK corporates. And, and the scale of wage demands compared with GDP growth will make it almost impossible to meet expectations. Um, so this will force corporates to revisit business models and innovate in how they operate. And, and, and so I think we can expect an acceleration of digitalization of in-house processes and customer interfaces and that ability to flex into the market as to how they take uh, products and ideas to, 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 to customers. In terms of specifically on interest rates, I think, of course, higher interest rates are a curse for some and a blessing for others. So savers and lenders will probably welcome some higher interest rates, while borrowers and investors are less likely to be quite so pleased about it. So again, there'll be need for businesses to be able to adapt their focus and their offerings to the changing needs of their customers. So this, of course, heightens the need for businesses to cherish their data, be clear who their customers are, 
what they want and how they want and how their business can meet the needs of those customers. So inflation and uh, higher interest rates clearly present some real challenges for business. But again, I think it gives them a chance to adapt their, their operating models and also be really focused on what the client needs are and how they can understand their clients better. And I think both of those are ways in which corporates can mitigate against what are, again, changing uh, economic circumstances. Yeah, indeed. So you mentioned different business models as a way of combating some sort of challenges and all these challenges. And we're going to talk into um, that a little bit more later. But, but I guess an, an example, if you like, almost not so new, but a different type of business model is the so-called buy now, pay later type um, service. And it's an interesting area given the squeeze on, house, on households and already uh, a lot of consumer uh, spending uh, pressure. So, Alex, from your perspective, obviously you work a lot in the retail lending space. space. Do you think this is going to be a continuous trend? So, I, it, it's definitely a, an area of really interesting focus for, for right now and, and for, for, for the next 12 months, Irina. I, I think we've seen uh, you know, we are seeing a, a squeeze on spending power that, that, that few of us have, have seen before. Um, I think we've had UK regulators who have long signalled that they've had concerns in uh, the UK population's reliance on higher cost credit um, and in the risks um, that, that relate to that around persistent indebtedness. Um, lots of focus from FCA over the last um, five, six years, frankly, in that kind of space already. Um, and, you know, some of the words that we've used already and, and, and where we've looked at kind of the value that, that, that this delivers to um, customers and I suppose more bright, more widely to the um, economy more generally. Um, we've, we've definitely got a price regulator in financial services now. Um, the, 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 the UK financial regulator was long not a um, arguably a price regulator, but since getting involved in a price cap on high cost short term um, credit uh, lending um, a few years ago. Um, we've, we've definitely seen as a result of that more limits and, and, and less less ability of, of those who are less well served by prime lenders uh, in, in places to go to find um, short term uh, short term borrowing and short term credit. Um, and it's this idea of, you know, you squeeze a balloon in one place and so other people go some, somewhere else. And I think that's a good example of where because of how constrained uh, a lot of the consumer credit market is at the moment, buy now, pay later suddenly fills a gap um, that, that, that's, uh, that people are looking to fill. And I think some of the risks there that are presented around, you know, um, the, the, the cost of, of credit at point of sale, um, which is all wrapped up in fundamentally the, the, the purchase that somebody wants to make really, um, not so much focused on, on the price of the credit. Um, this is why regulators continue to be interested in that. Um, so, so I think we'll see um, FCA continue to push um, its expectations around affordability, uh, long-term affordability and sustainability for, for, for that kind of uh, product. Um, and I guess there's going to be a careful balance that's going to be needed around, um, you know, responsible lenders out there, of which there are many, um, meeting the demands of responsible borrowers, actually, um, so that, you know, all of that works together to to increase a uh, economic growth in the UK, which is still somewhat, um, um, you know, beholden to um, uh, consumer spending. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, and Robert, how do you see the pressure on consumer spending, I guess, um, impacting on other sectors? Obviously, you work across the board with all sorts of large corporates. 
Yeah, well, I think it's inevitable that discretionary spend for consumers is will continue to come under pressure in some form, and hence spend on the classic uh, larger cost items like cars and holidays could be adversely affected. Although one thing we have noticed in the last two tightenings in uh, the economy in the UK is that what used to be considered discretionary spend has become essential spend for many people. So, for example, eating out used to be something that would drop off quickly when there was a tightening in the market. And then the last two um, economic downturns we've had, that that didn't happen to the same extent because it's been built into some uh, behaviours that consumers so, show. But there's inevitably going to be some tightening. Um, that, of course, inevitably means there'll be some innovation in how you finance transactions. So I think to directly answer your question, yes, there'll be, I think, an increase in the number of buy now, pay later kind of structures. Um, and that can help businesses smooth the impact of fluctuations in demand. So demand may be really tight now, but in 18 months time, it might have eased considerably. And, you know, buy now, pay later gives that flexibility. But my cautionary word is probably that the regulator needs to be really vigilant about those schemes that are not misleading consumers or creating deferred debt burdens, because that will have longer term consequences for all businesses in the UK. Um, when we look back to the, uh, the, the the financial crisis, you know, we saw the emergence of things like personal contract plans in the motor retail finance space. Uh, they were designed in a low interest environment. They were designed in a low unemployment environment. Um, and so as we go into a changing set of circumstances, those will need to be monitored, as well as looking at what now comes in terms of ideas, because they may well provide the finance and short term they might boost demand. But we've always got to have an eye on what impact are they having on the longer term sustainability of the markets that we operate in and ensuring that we're not leaving consumers uh, out of pocket. Yeah. Vigilance is the word indeed. Uh, when it comes to our next topic, which is something about more exciting, the sort of the use of artificial intelligence in, in financial services, but also across the board uh, amongst larger corporates, I would have thought. So we've heard a lot, something called uh, chat GPT in the, the, the last I don't know, few weeks, if you like, since the year has started. And in fact, in November, it was first launched and, and became known. Um, there's certainly more coming from all sorts of angles, as we've heard different announcements in the last only two days. Um, clearly, it's shown us in a very short period as to how much we can achieve and how much more efficient we can be if we were to tap into this potential. But how do you think the use of artificial intelligence embedding into business more broadly? Robert, maybe starting with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it's it's amazing, isn't it? The last um, few weeks, we've really seen uh, chat GPT suddenly have an impact um, and getting everybody's attention. And we've got Microsoft and Google both announcing AI products into the marketplace. And, you know, the possibilities with AI are almost endless. You know, you'd look at how you could use something like chat GPT and you really think gosh it's almost difficult to imagine the areas where you you know you it wouldn't have some applicability and we're now seeing the application of AI in mass consumer environments probably for the first time like search engines and social media platforms 
So it's becoming something that's much more visible and therefore that usually drives some acceleration of, of usage. So the opportunities for business to improve internal efficiency, provide a better, faster, more bespoke service to their clients are huge. You know, businesses need to embrace this. It needs to be um, really um, taken forward and some bold thinking about how it can apply in whatever sector you operate. And frankly, if businesses don't em embrace and invest in AI type products, they will simply be left behind. However, as with all innovation, we also need some healthy scepticism to assess those risks and we need some sceptics to be challenging it. You know, where will liability rest if GPT becomes widely used in advisory circumstances? You know, what if they get something wrong? Who's accountable for the use of AI between the supplier, the corporate and the customer? So risks and controls, whilst I appreciate not the most exciting topics, as AI emerges and we must embrace and use it and, and unlock massive potential with it, it will also need some real attention to make sure that we um, control it and we, again, protect the, the, the customers and the consumers in, in the marketplace. And I guess how far we go as well with the use of it, and it's all sorts of a plethora of ethical considerations in terms of how we use it, because there are already a number of um, examples, if you like, out there where it's obvious that perhaps it's not as healthy for us as a society, as a human society, to have so much artificial intelligence uh, interference as we seem to be heading to. So perhaps some sort of boundaries have to be drawn fairly quickly, I would have thought. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Alex, what do you see in, in the financial services industry and how are our clients thinking about it? So, so th I mean, this is potentially revolutionary, isn't it? And I think, you know, on, on the really positive side of things, if you stand back a little bit from AI specifically and think about digital, and, and I think we might have a, more to talk about that in, in due course, Irina, um, this is this is a means of um, really getting the buy-in and interest of generations of, of of the population who have never been interested in financial services, and, and suddenly um, this this becomes a means of making that a bit more accessible. The the flip side is also true uh, from a generational perspective of making sure that um, all services remain um, you know readily accessible in in the right kind of format. But but digital customer journeys are all definitely already an embraced and you know a legitimate route to market. Um, I think when you look at some of the data aspects of that, we're still only really still playing at the edges of how some of that can be utilised really to um, improve customer outcomes as much as they can to the benefit of, 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 of businesses. Um, we've, we've got, you know, telephony and chat robots um, with, with AI who are already playing roles in um, delivering support to um, financial services customers across the piece. Um, and I guess the, the, the point here is that the really exciting bit is, is just how the real benefit really comes from longer term uh, learning that all of that embeds as well. Um, but I think for, for businesses as well, financial services institutions, um, the, 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 the way that AI can present really huge potential for much smarter um, uh, and robust control and oversight functions becomes quite interesting. It, it's the same as Robert's earlier point around kind of this, this you know, the sceptical bit here, but the control bit here, if, if you can get a machine line of defence within your three lines of defence or added to your three lines of defence, um, you can genuinely get some really smart um, uh, scale um, that leaves 
um, your really smart human capital to to focus on the real valuable thinking within those control functions whilst the AI and and machine learning deals with a lot more of the automated oversight which which people have had to do over a, over a long time period of time and I think the fact that when that starts to happen in real time as well there's some really exciting stuff in there so this is why um, I think from my perspective re regulators Bank of England Treasury uh, are all very keen to promote um, the UK as a, as a safe regulatory environment for this type of technical innovation I think we might come on to that in a little bit more detail in due course but and you know let, let's hope that we can get the right balance between um, the, the sort of uh, open doors for that and and a change in the mindset of a regulator that, that sort of embraces the, the benefit that it can bring. So huge sets of data, chatbots, um, chat GPT, AI more broadly, metaverse, all sorts of new terms. That's coupled with the wider climate and sustainability considerations that we all now have to think about across everything we do. We are set for business model changes, aren't we? It's just, it seems inevitable. It's um, as you say, it's revolutionary, Alex. Um, how far are we going to take it and how fast, if you like, is going to be that change of business models that both you and Robert mentioned and referenced a few times already? Shall, shall I talk first on, on the financial services side of things? I, I, I think it's... Um... It's already happening, isn't it? It's so 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 this this, this has already started. Um, we've we've already had lots of digital transformation, and as I said, you know, a moment ago, um, the the way that those digital journeys can can stand um, as an important comparator, I think, against for, for want of best term, traditional face-to-face -face delivery of financial services, is potentially a good thing as long as we are not excluding um, chunks of the population from from access otherwise. So this is why. Um, the regulator is, is is interested around its access to cash work and I think increasingly access to services that's probably framed as um, and, and I suppose when you look at kind of you know the, the very um, the, the emotive and, and, and political aspect of, of closure of branches of banks uh, for example that that becomes important but you know we then start to see innovative ways of, of creating pop-up or semi-permanent banking hubs as well, which means that we see different ways of bringing some of the technology to play in a different space. And I suppose that's my just other observation really, which is um, sometimes it's quite difficult to get people comfortable with kind of how, how you apply a rule book and regulatory framework uh, in a way that it wasn't really designed for. So, and then that definitely comes to the fore with, with some of these approaches where you've got multiple parties uh, with different technology platforms uh, turning up you know, in, in, in a local environment for, for somebody to turn up and, and, and do their face-to-face -face, uh, banking. So I, th I think this is where where there's been some good success in, in the use of um, sandbox approaches by the regulators. We really need to see that continue um, so, so that we can continue to lead the ideas and, and, and sort of novel ways of, of, of building um, new and, and, and trustworthy financial services. Yeah. And I completely agree, Alex, that we're already there with operating models changing. I think what will be interesting is how quickly they then accelerate into new new phases. And, you know, it's my belief that the, in, the further internationalisation of businesses um, will accelerate that as well as that digital world and virtual working, making access to markets so much easier. So business models will have to become even more fluid and even more adaptable than they've been recently. So 
I think you'll see more joint ventures, strategic partnerships, joint arrangements. Um, you maybe see a trade off in corporates between when they would have traditionally gone for control and 100% ownership and having um, oversight over everything that happened in, in if you want, their, their, uh, their global structure to something that's much more flexible. They might have two, three different parties joining them in a market as a joint venture, uh, getting much closer to their supply chain. So any business model that more easily facilitates collaboration uh, up and down the supply chain quickly across the globe is going to be much more attractive and much more effective in a digitally enabled environment. So shall we, shall we expect our next big conference, Robert, to be in the metaverse somewhere globally as well with our colleagues in India and wherever we work as well, the US? 100%. I mean, our conferences already are are, are virtual for on, on most occasions now. So I, I I think that's exactly where it will go. I think the speed at which it might come will be even faster than people realise. Yeah, indeed. Um, another topic that's been obviously subject to a lot of excitement, but also a lot of scepticism, I would have thought indeed, is uh, the one around cryptocurrency activities. So. The government's just announced, uh, well, sort of consultation around relatively ambitious plans to regulate cryptocurrency activities. Um, Alex, in your experience, and obviously we do have a practice which focuses on cryptocurrency activities, <clears throat> are we going to see this through in 2023? Uh, or, or how long is it going to take, for example, to regulate that? Obviously, there are some sort of provisional timelines now, but where are we on that? So, so if we've just talked about um, all of the stuff that's already happening and it's already here, whether we like it or not, um, this feels to me like something that lots of important stuff to happen this year, but the idea that it's fully embedded and implemented over the short term, um, there's, there's a lot to do before we get there, I think, Irina. I mean, it, it, as you say, it's been great that we've, we've got... Um, we finally got a, a consultation um, since the start of February around this, and I think it's fair to say that the reaction has broadly been pretty positive, um, including from the industry. Um, you know, without going into a lot of the detail, it's, it's the couple of things that stand out for me are we, we've got a couple of real particular areas of emphasis around um, seizing the opportunity that this presents, so putting the UK right in the middle of this, but also um, introducing a um, a tough regime that, that's going to build um, trust, um, and I think that that sort of is going to require. Uh, some quite careful navigation to achieve both of those things at the same time. Um, and I suppose we've, um, you know, we'll definitely have lots to talk about this year to answer your question. Um, I think at a high level, um, even the consultation um, sort of suggests that um, high priority crypto assets um, wouldn't be um, regulated until mid 2025 at the earliest. So that's some way off. Um, and let's frankly remember the political landscape that we've got, a forthcoming general election um, and the limits of the regulators just capacity, um, which which I think all of that points to it being a fairly um, optimistic uh, timeline. Um, but then when you look at the fact that that sort of five to 10 percent, I think, of, of, of UK adults have already got some kind of crypto assets. Um, it's fair to say that, you know, whilst we're talking about this regulation, um, there's likely to be a lot of money made and lost before regulation really bites. Um, and I think one of the one of the key government concerns here will be built around the um, consumer protection element of making sure that the crypto owning uh, population who are more likely to be young, possibly more vulnerable, um, are, are appropriately protected. Um, 
it's got some really interesting aspects around um, UK competitiveness as well, um, and we'll really test the FCA's new secondary objective on growth and competitiveness. Um, so I think, again, this balance between how do you make the market look really inviting for everybody, uh, but also deliver those high levels of consumer protection will be, will be interesting. Um, and in terms of you know the really closest geographical competition here um, we've got the eu um, and their um, markets and crypto assets directive um, which will be right on the doorstep um, so so in a post brexit kind of world um, commentators are really going to be interested i think in watching how uk um, can deliver on its intent to make the uk's um, crypto regulation more nimble um, and proportionate to use their words um, than the eu's yeah Interesting. I've got actually one of my best friends working in the Commission on the MICA Directive, who's uh, writing the rules as we speak. So, oh, actually, they have written them. So, but interesting feedback they were getting as well. Um, and Robert, do you think we're going to to have London as the centre, if you like, of uh, cryptocurrency trading and, and activities more broadly? Do you think we're going to win over the Europeans in that? Well, I think London's got the skill sets and it's got the capability. It's got the Traditional ability to 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 take a number of different financial services products and make sure that they're properly structured and properly regulated. So, I would uh, there's no reason why it can't be London. Um, I think getting ahead of the market and trying to get some regulation in place is really important. I mean, we are seeing obviously increased risks for businesses that are willing to be paid and pay in in cryptocurrencies. And there's a general concern that many businesses are not actually fully aware of the risks they're taking on. So, um, you know, we've seen crypto assets appear as a new feature, for example, in insolvencies where many lenders have assumed they can recover assets from an insolvent company only to find that the currencies have lost significant value in the time between insolvency and proceedings or that they're unretrievable. So a regulated currency would provide much more assurance and comfort for many providers of finance and the users of finance. And London has all the skill sets between the legal structure, the regulatory structure and the financial services knowledge and skills and capability to set itself apart. Yeah, well, let's hope so indeed. It's going to be certainly interesting developments in that area. So we talked about fairly gloomy economic picture. Um, we talked about all sorts of developments in terms of DI space, uh, robots, charts, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, cryptos, all sorts of, so, some sort of abstract concepts, if you like. The one subject we haven't touched on is people, perhaps the most important bit still, fortunately, uh, in this all happening. Um, so what is your view? Are we are we still going to see labour shortage um, this year? And, and are you expecting any sort of major changes in the labour market um, this year? Robert, perhaps we'll change starting with you. Sure. Um, well, I think labour market shortages will be very sector specific. Um, I mean, many like retail are already seeing a much softer recruitment market. Whereas I don't really get a sense of any significant softening in the financial services market or indeed many others. So shortage of resources and skill sets is likely to continue for for many uh, sectors that we, we support and particularly in financial services. However, back to that greater internationalization of business and the benefits of virtual working, um, I think the issue can no longer be looked at through the lens of the UK economy or the UK labour market. Um, so many countries now have significant pools of well-educated, highly skilled people who want to work globally 
And so employee shortages are likely to be addressed by accessing other markets. And again, back to that usual using the um, digitalization process to make service delivery seamless across borders because you have access to, to people in, in different uh, communities. So I think um, we will continue to see shortages, but I think we'll see that increasing use of um, skill sets and capabilities from, from outside the UK to help manage them. Yeah, certainly. If I could also move on somewhere in the beach and work from there, that would be great. Not allowed there, I'm told. So I am here in London. Only um, if you get good Wi-Fi. <laughs> that's true. Um, Alex, from, from your perspective, what do you see um, on all sorts of developments, if you like, uh, on, on, on the regulatory side when it comes to people in labour market? I, I think the most interesting thing that I'd highlight is just how more interested the regulators in the UK are around inclusion and diversity. So IND, um, it's it's this is no longer just something that runs alongside regulation. Actually, the regulators are developing their own ideas as to what they expect to see. And you can kind of see why, uh, because I, I think um, the, the significant role that, that um, inclusion and diversity can play on how well run financial institutions are, um, it shouldn't be underestimated, I think. And, and there's clear alignment here with FCA and PRA uh, around um, how aspects of board effectiveness and how effective governance arrangements are in a world of uh, senior managers and certification regime, uh, where, where you're really pushing firms to demonstrate that um, accountable decision making is the result of um, uh, you know good governance that features really diverse challenge and mitigates um, risk of, of groupthink. So you can see why they'd want to push on on this, and we're expecting uh, more uh, consultation discussion um, during the course of this year. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to see how it gets taken forward ultimately, where, um, you know, frankly, the, 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 the safe space for regulators has been to push firms on making sure they serve um, deep technical matter expertise on boards, making decisions around deep technical aspects of financial services. So this idea that there's there's good things, really good things to come from um, IND um, and, and, and diverse group, uh, you know, di diverse thinking in, in boards um, will be interesting to see how it really plays out in practice. And in particular, I guess how well it is sort of enforced or supervised, because it's as usual with all sorts of topics like that. The key is how well the regulator is doing in, in ensuring that this is actually applied in practice, isn't it? And, and definitely less of the sort of binary tests that you can run here either as well, right? It's it, 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 it's a lot more subjective on this. OK, well, I've got a um, final question, which seems to have become a favourite of mine over the time we've been doing this uh, series of podcasts, particularly. What advice would you give to our clients um, if you were, for example, advising them directly um, for, for this year? If given that they are probably going to face another year of lots of challenges and uncertainties. Alex? I think I, I, we've talked a little bit around kind of where um, retail consumers fit in the whole agenda. And I, I guess I'd be saying to firms, really make sure this year that you can articulate how you deliver good outcomes for your clients. Um, and I think demonstrating that is is going to sort of require and demonstrating good value in, in these challenging times um, is going to require much more than just platitudes and, and marketing fluff. Um, so 
use that data that we talked about a while ago to, to show the right mix of you know the quantitative and qualitative um, evidence of how you deliver good value and good outcomes to uh, clients across the duration of the relationship they have with you. Um, if you treat them well now and you deliver good things this, this year and in this kind of circumstance, um, you're setting yourself well for the future. Yeah, basically get real about caring about customers, saying it bluntly. <laughs> and, and Robert, your advice? I'd say scenario plan early, develop business models and operational structures that enable that agility that we talked about earlier. Um, because being able to adapt quickly with those digital solutions and with an international outlook will ensure companies can withstand many of the challenges that will arise. But perhaps much more importantly, and to finish on a positive note, also be able to maximise the opportunities that a volatile market will always present. So I hope many of our clients will think that way and embrace a lot of those opportunities and, and really go and make the most of the market. Yeah, uh, fantastic. And you're right, uh, definitely a positive note to finish on. So thank you very much for um, for your comments. It's been really an interesting conversation and no doubt it will be an interesting year ahead. I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in as well and to leave our listeners with some more regulatory food for thought that you can all sign up to the financial services regulatory newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox stay up to date with upcoming episodes be sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify and amazon music we'll be back with our next episode next month to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world thank you again and goodbye